Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. From the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Hey, everyone. The team at What Next is committed to covering as many angles of this coronavirus story as we can. And you can give us a hand. Call and leave us a message. Our number is 202-888-2588. Tell me a story about how you're getting through lockdown. Tell me about your work situation. Tell me how you're staying positive. We want to hear it all. Your message will inform our coverage. We might even play it on the show. That number again is 202-888-2588. You can also just track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Okay, on to the show. I was looking at your Twitter, and it looks like you you got an account back in 2010, but you've had like two tweets on there <laughs> until the last month. Yes, I, I'm a I have been until very recently a lurker, and the most I ever really did was like some other tweet, and then a few weeks ago, I started tweeting, and now I seem to tweet every day. Rachel Bedard has one of those jobs where, until recently, it seemed better to be anonymous. She's a doctor in New York City, but the patients she treats live on Rikers Island. That's the jail complex in the middle of the East River, between Queens and the Bronx. For the last month, Rachel's had the same anxious feeling a lot of doctors have had, anticipating the arrival of this new coronavirus. She warned her family about it, worried about it on the job. What was the first conversation you remember having at work about coronavirus? The first conversation I actually really remember was a text exchange that I had with my boss where somebody else had sort of tweeted, this virus is going to be a disaster for correctional settings. Um, Someone described it as seeing a tsunami coming from the shore. And at the same time, it sort of felt like a shared delusion because it wasn't here yet. Hmm. And so a little bit, it felt like being in the crucible, you know, hmm. where we were all sort of um, infecting one another with this anxiety. But this anxiety, it got real fast. According to the Legal Aid Society, the infection rate at Rikers 
is nearly eight times the infection rate in New York City. And if you know anything about the situation in New York City, you know it's bad here. When I've been talking about jails recently, I keep describing them as the world's worst cruise ship crossed with the world's worst nursing home plus violence. So, you know, it's people who are trapped together, reliant on communal services for things like food and recreation. And so, you know, my patients are particularly vulnerable. And the thing about Rachel's patients is that their infections came from the outside and they'll make their way back out again. Today on the show, Rachel Bedard says Rikers and jails around the country need to drastically reduce their populations to weather the coming storm. We'll talk about why that's so hard. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Rachel Bedard may have kept quiet publicly before this crisis, but she's used to being an advocate. For the last few years, she has worked primarily with the sick and elderly at Rikers, part of Correctional Health Services. If her patients need to leave the island for, say, cancer treatment, she's the first person to raise her voice and say, hey, this person needs attention. Can you describe, like, the baseline health situation in Rikers in terms of how much soap is there? How often are your patients who are inmates, how often are they being able to get a shower or wash their hands? Like, before all this happened, what were the sanitary conditions like inside? Yeah. So, you know, I think a couple of things that are important to understand. So, we are an independent health authority, which means that we are a city agency that provides the health care, but we are separate from the Department of Corrections, which is a really important fact because it means that there are sort of two different forces with very different leadership and very different priorities. Well, I imagine it's so that your patients can trust you because you're not the jailers. You hope you hope so. I mean, I, I think it does it does help obviate some of the dual loyalty concerns that come with being physicians who work for the correctional agency. So as an independent observer, Mm -hmm. are the conditions inside, how are they like or unlike what situations on the outside are? Oh, I mean, it's not comparable remotely. So the first thing to understand is independent health authority thing. The second thing to understand is that the infrastructure of Rikers, the buildings themselves, are quite decrepit and have had very little investment over the last 20 years. I mean, literally things like rotting floors where patients are at risk of falling through and patients and colleagues have described seeing rodents in the housing areas. And the buildings are drafty in a way that, you know, just makes you feel sort of uncomfortable. Um, and at the same time, the air is very close and it feels like the circulation's not great. And You've worked there for how many years now? Three and a half. 
So you've described these pretty rough settings, like what life is like inside, even without coronavirus. I know you've talked about having these dorm meetings with prisoners to try to explain how they can protect themselves, given what's happening now. Can you take me inside one of those? Yeah, that was a really horrible day. So when we talk about dorms, you know, we're really talking about these sort of large barrack style rooms where there are 35, 40, 45 guys. In one room. In a room, sleeping in a room in cots that are a few feet apart from one another. It's entirely open. They have a shared bathroom with maybe three sinks for all of them to use. Those facilities are maintained by the Department of Corrections and not by us. They share showers. They share toilets. There's very, very little privacy, as you might imagine. And it also sounds like a a fantastic breeding ground for an infectious disease. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And And we walked around to talk to my patients in the infirmary, and we talked about you know, this is happening in the community. We're going to do our very best to keep you safe here. Please wash your hands as frequently as you can. You know, try to try to stay apart from one another. But I mean, like they're not, their beds aren't six feet apart, right? Like hmm. they, there's sort of no way for them to observe social distancing the way that we're all sort of trying so diligently to do in the community. The other thing that really is important to understand about jail is that and this is why the nursing home comparison is almost more apt than the cruise ship, is it's not just that people are trapped near one another, but they also don't get to do things for themselves. So when a person in a housing area needs to be moved to the clinic for evaluation, an officer has to open a gate and bring them there, walk them down the hall. When a person goes to the hospital, they are transported on a bus officers at their side. When they move from one facility to another, they might be handcuffed. When they are given medication, a pharmacist holds the medication and gives it to them. When they're given their meals, you know, a worker comes around with trays and hands out those trays. There's just an incredible amount of excess contact that happens in this setting that is a function of jail and can't really be minimized. Yeah, I, that's a really good way of putting it, the sort of excess touch and the excess contact. And I know you guys as doctors are doing everything you can, but I imagine you must feel the frustration of not being able to reach everyone in their time of need. Like I read one one incarcerated person's story, someone who is inside Rikers, and they said, you know, there was someone in their dorm who was coughing and coughing and coughing. And finally, another inmate who had worked in the clinic, Jerry rigged a setup with a soda bottle and a catheter to kind of get whatever was in his throat up. And that was like the only way <laughs> that someone would pay attention to what exactly was happening with this guy. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to talk about our work because... I am simultaneously incredibly proud of what our health service has managed to put in place over the last month, but jail is a terrible place to be sick. If you're in the hospital, you have a call button. If you're at home, even if you're home alone and sick, you have a telephone, right? Like there are ways for you to sort of call out for help and reach the person who you trust to come and help you. Everything in jail is a little bit of a game of broken telephone. You know, Hmm. a person in their cell might be getting sicker. And until someone notices, 
you know, that might not come to attention. And once it comes to attention, that might come to the attention of an officer and not a health professional. And it's on that officer who has many other things to do to communicate that and figure out who to communicate that to so that the right response happens. Jail's not bad at dealing with true emergencies, but in the situation we're in right now, where people are sick in this kind of sub-acute way, jail's a really hard place to take care of a lot of people like that. Hmm. And so it's been sort of clear to myself and my colleagues since the beginning that the only meaningful intervention here would be to reduce the jail population. Yeah, and you're not the only people saying that. I mean, the New York City Board of Corrections wrote this letter two weeks ago, basically saying, we know that the best efforts we have will not be enough to prevent transmission of this virus in Rikers. And they cited other cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, said they were doing more to release prisoners than New York City. And they had a whole list of people they recommended releasing, people over 50, people with underlying conditions, people who were there for administrative reasons, like a technical violation of parole, like failing to meet curfew, people serving sentences under a year. I know that as of March 30th, about 650 inmates have been released from Rikers. Do we know what the latest count is? Uh, my impression is that it's over a thousand. How many people are still inside? I think today there's about 4,400. In a non-COVID scenario, if we were not in the midst of a global pandemic, to have reduced the jail population by a thousand in a matter of weeks would have been beyond my wildest dreams. But hmm. the challenge is the amount that we need the population to decrease to make a real difference in terms of the public health benefit. Um, we're not there yet. I think. And it's not just about how many detainees are sharing a dorm. It's really about staffing also, right? So if you have a dorm that has 30 people and now you've released a bunch and you have 18 people, you still need staff to staff that dorm. There are still officers there 24-7. There are still health staff coming around to give out medications and check on people. There are still workers giving out those meal trays. And all of that movement in and out is what is going to make it just impossible for us to totally say that we have anything contained. Yeah, I've seen this really this really compelling argument made that when you think about jails, you have to think about them not just in terms of the people inside, but like the continuous churn of people coming in and out of the jail on a daily basis. And it's sort of what separates jails from prisons, too, because there's less churn at a prison where there's fewer inmates coming in and out all of the time. So jails are sort of uniquely positioned in this way. Yeah. I mean, you know, jails are the emergency rooms of correctional facilities. Most people who come in and out of jails in this country spend relatively few nights there. And Jails are not fortresses. They're not closed systems. They are very, very permeable. And that applies for everybody coming in and out, the detainees, the officers, health staff, attorneys, visitors, all of that. At least as of yesterday, I believe I saw that there were four um, correctional officers who have died already. That's extraordinary and devastating. And those folks are not people who, you know, they're not health professionals. Like they don't need to be on the front line of this crisis, but they are. And those people then go out and live in New York or they live in the surrounding communities. You know, CEOs live on 
Long Island and in Westchester and in New Jersey. And COs are correctional officers. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what they come in contact with in the jails, they're going to bring home the same way that I'm going to bring home what I come in contact with in the jails. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting to me to see politicians find their footing here, like talk about what needs to happen, because as more and more people have been released over the last couple of weeks from Rikers, district attorneys have started speaking out, sometimes saying things that seem in conflict, like the district attorney here in Brooklyn wrote something in The New York Times saying we need to release more people from prisons and jails. And then he wrote a letter to Mayor Bill de Blasio and said, hey, I'm a little worried about who you're releasing (laughs) from jails. And frankly, his concerns seemed understandable. He was worried about people accused of domestic violence and sexual predators being released and whether those people might re-victimize people they had been put in jail so that they would be away from. Something that I've been saying a lot in the last couple of weeks is that I, I am a doctor and I'm I'm not in the risk assessment game. So I'm no, I'm no more skilled than the average civilian in assessing someone's public safety risk. Um, and so I defer to the DAs on and you know, others on those hardest decisions and don't envy them the choices that they're facing right now. And at the same time, my pushback would be, we certainly have not released all of the technical parole violation folks. We have not, you know, there there's still low hanging fruit <laughs> that can go. Um, and until all of those folks have left, I'm not actually sort of prepared to engage the anxiety around releasing the folks who might be considered most dangerous. The other thing that I think is so critical to understand is that there's a real difference between people who have been convicted and people who are in pretrial detention. And those things get really conflated for my patients a lot. I do feel really cautious about getting overly certain about who really poses a public safety risk when we're talking about folks where they haven't been convicted and the evidence of their charge has not been thoroughly evaluated. What does a good response look like here? Like if you could design from scratch what happens at Rikers when it comes to COVID, what what would you do? Honestly, I wouldn't do a ton differently from what we have done in terms of the healthcare response. So I think the way in which we have sort of aggressively tried to identify people with symptoms, we are really lucky that we can test those people. And we've had tests for a long time, sort of more than the community has had. Um, And then uh, segregate out the people who are positive and keep a really close eye on them. From a healthcare perspective, I think we're sort of doing what we can do. I think on the facilities side, I wish that our patients had better access to the cleaning supplies and just more control over their environment than they're allowed in jail. What are some of the stories you've heard from patients who who talk about what they're unable to get and they need? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, at least a couple of weeks ago, 
it was just true that, you know, sinks were clogged and non-functional or toilets were overflowing or, you know, like 40 men sharing a bathroom, it doesn't go that great, right? So that's one issue is just sort of being able to keep up with things as they break down from use. The other thing is just that surfaces are, you know, normally are very seldom disinfected. You have to picture that we visits were cut off several weeks ago. The only access that our patients have to the outside world right now is a shared telephone in the dorm. And that means that you have 30 or 35 guys who are lining up to hold the same phone receiver up to their mouths, right? And how often is that disinfected? So now they're supposed to have access to be able to wipe it down between uses. But can I say with certainty that that is actually happening, that those supplies don't run out, that everyone doesn't? I can't. The other thing I would say is that I wish the population was even lower than it is now, and I wish that we had gotten people out earlier. So we started agitating for depopulation at the beginning of March, and you know, by the time LA had released 1,700 people, we'd released maybe a couple of hundred. Larry Krasner, the DA in Philadelphia, who has just been so smart in the way that he has talked about this keeps repeating the phrase like that the virus doesn't move at the pace of government, by which he means the normal sort of pace of criminal justice reform or criminal justice decisions where, you know, an individual case might get quibbled about back and forth over weeks. It's not fast enough to make a difference here. And so if I could change anything about the last month, it would be that we would have gotten more people out faster. And even having said that, it's still vitally important that we get as many people out now as we can. So when do you go back to work? Tomorrow. I'm going back tomorrow. Do you know what you're walking into? Tomorrow I'm, I'm walking into ongoing work around the release stuff. So continuing to try to think about patients who are at risk, provide information to attorneys who are requesting it in order to make bail applications. And then later in the week, I'm going to see patients in the infirmary who are COVID positive and patients not in the infirmary who are COVID positive and spend a lot of time rounding in our the COVID-confirmed areas. And I think that's going to be really intense. Yeah. How do you prepare for that? Well, on a practical level, I'm preparing for it by uh, thinking about the PPE question and the- Personal protective gear. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Emotionally, I I mean, frankly, I'm like eager to go. Um, Hmm. And uh, all of my colleagues- in and out of the jails, all all of the doctors I've been talking to, everybody in a way that I find incredibly moving, everybody wants to be with patients right now. It doesn't feel good to know that our colleagues are on the front lines when we are at home. And I, I want to go be with my guys, you know, they're going through something incredibly difficult and they're cut off from the world to an even greater degree than they normally are. Um, And it feels incredibly important to me to be able to walk around and, provide some comfort or clinical care in that situation. Rachel Bedard, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Dr. Rachel Bedard is Senior Director of Geriatrics and Complex Care Services at New York City's Jail Complex on Rikers Island. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel Bedard. Not long after we recorded our interview with Rachel, we got a message on our answering machine from an inmate at Rikers. Hi, I'm a detainee 
NGRVC. I recognize going by the alias NTA. And I was informed by my lawyer to call about the inhumane living conditions that I'm surrounded by and also living in. I fear for my life and health due to the lack of social distancing, no cleaning supplies, and how much they switch inmates and correctional officers inside of Building 5A. I'm also being deprived of proper safety gear as far as gloves and masks. I currently sleep with no covers or clothes, just a sheet with my clothes on due to there being no linen. Laundry has also been non-existent here. Proper medical attention is not being, being met because, well, they claim that people don't have symptoms of coronavirus, so it's not that serious. It's hard to get the sick call. Also, detainees are very tense due to them being cooped up and not, and not receiving any recreational privileges, and it causes problems and creates a hostile environment. Minimum standards are not being met, and one of them is an hour of breakup day. The human beings have been doing this, and I pray for a solution. And that's the show. We want to thank you for calling and leaving messages about how you're getting through this really strange period. Our number, if you need it, it's 202-888-2588. Your voicemail could inform our reporting or get played on the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Mara Silvers, and Jason DeLeon. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.